The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Do you wish for a more fulfilling, erotic, and sexual life? The journey begins here. This is The Sexual Voice with your host, Jessica Ford. As a relationship psychotherapist working with individuals and couples for decades, Jessica knows how to create and support meaningful relationships. Along with her guests, Jessica expands the lens of sex therapy, connecting you with a more satisfying and healthier sexual self. Now, here is Jessica Ford. Hello, and welcome to this first episode of The Sexual Voice. I'm Jessica Ford, and this show is coming to you live from the beautiful state of Wisconsin. Not the state where all the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the children are above average, but pretty close enough. Besides uh, great beer and cheese, and of course the Green Bay Packers, go pack, there is Lake Michigan, my favorite place to sail. So before I get underway today, I'm just going to let you know, if you have any questions, thoughts, or comments throughout the show, please call 866-472-5787, or you can email me at thesexualvoice at jafordgroup.com. So to begin, I need to give a shout out and a big thank you to Voice America team, my executive producer, Fiona King, the Director of Host Services, Jeff Gertzel, the Production Manager, Randy Jackman, and those behind the scenes who were involved and supported me over the past four months. All of you are exceptional, and I would not be on the air today without this unique partnership. There's also a small group of women who have made me look good. Camilla, Coco, Lauren, and Daniela, thank you. And least, but not last, is my amazing family and dear friends who have supported, contributed, and shown up in so many ways. I won't embarrass you by mentioning your names, but you know I love all of you and look forward to your assessments. I think so, kind of, your assessments at the end of today. So to begin with a quote from Maslow, who is a psychologist and work that really in many ways is at the heart of what I'm trying to work on for the next 13 weeks with you. He says, it seems that the necessary thing to do is not to fear mistakes, to plunge in and to do the best that one can, hoping to learn enough from blunders to correct them eventually. So folks, I'm about to plunge in. So I'm gonna take the next few minutes to give you a short overview of what the sexual voice is about. And largely it is a sex show, 
but it's from a sex therapist perspective. And you may wonder or ask, who comes to my office and what does a sex therapist do? Well, basically, the intent is to encourage and, te and to teach people about their most intimate part of their being, sex. To encourage and to teach them to talk about sex. For many, sex is a mystery based on myths cloaked in religion and cultural gender bias, or tragically learned about from sexual trauma. All too often, this keeps us disconnected from our bodies, our emotions, and it leaves our minds and our thoughts to take over while ignoring the whole of us. As a sex therapist, the work is to help people feel whole. It is about integration. Over the course of my professional work as a relationship psychotherapist and certified sex therapist, I've become acutely aware of people's struggles with sex and sexual issues. Often what appears to be a sexual difficulty comes down to an inability to know and express themselves sexually. They feel inadequate and lack confidence. Words like, it is embarrassing, awkward, painful, I feel ashamed or guilty, too often get expressed. And when I ask clients, where did you first learn about sex? They learn from no one, they say. No one taught me. Or I learned from friends or a buddy. And sometimes they say from porn. Men are supposed to know everything about everything, including sex, but they often say they don't. Most women have never looked at their vagina or even touched themselves. It's no wonder they can't talk about sex to anyone or even with themselves. They don't know about sex. The promising thing is they want to know, and that's why they're sitting in my office. In the past, there were sexual, um, people asked sexual questions to syndicated advice columnists like Ann Landers. She was the go-to person for thousands of people who wrote to her each week. She answered the same questions heard in clinical sessions today. Questions like affairs and infidelities, sexual desire or sexual orientations, fear, and sexual abuse were almost always in her columns. Unfortunately, her answers around homosexual orientation were far from sex positive and quite damaging. There are more sexualized TV shows, YouTube videos, podcasts, and sex shows than ever before, all talking about sex broadening our knowledge about sexual orientations and lifestyles. Sex is everywhere, and it seems like everyone's having it. Yet, we still do not know about sex. We're taught how to have anal sex, give blowjobs, have multiple orgasms, how to get it up, keep it up with our medications, even talk about tantric sex. And recently on a late night talk show, 
the location of the G-spot was that topic of conversation. Chelsea Handler told, tells us that she's had sex in over 96 countries, which I find very funny. And it's really refreshing that in some ways this 40-ish year old woman can now be so open to talk about her sexual exploits. And I, for one, am really grateful that sex is being so openly discussed. And for the most part, great information is being put out there. But I see these as behaviors and an expression of appetite. And while it's sexual, I guess I'm asking, what are we learning? What motivates these behaviors? And do we really define, or do they really define us sexually? Or is there more? From my perspective, I see sex as a basic human need. And over the next 13 weeks, I hope you will learn why sex is a need. Not just a need to fuck or be fucked, but a human need like food, air, and water. Sex is about health. It is an intrinsic, innate part of our humanity. Sex is more than procreation, intercourse, and orgasm. It is human fulfillment and connection. So along with my distinguished guests, we will discuss this concept with topics ranging from light to fun to controversial and even sometimes a bit painful. The intent is to make it informative and enlightening, and I sure hope it will be fun. So I'm kind of asking you to consider this as a weekly visit to a sex therapist to learn about sex and how to talk about it, to learn how to define yourself, your own sexual needs, and to see if there is a difference between sexual hunger and sexual appetite, and then how to gain the confidence to express your own sexual voice. As Maslow would say, what is necessary to change a person is to change his awareness of himself. So let's get underway. And we have Jim Foss here ready to join us. Uh, he's going to be talking about the inner workings of the brain and the neurological forces around sex and just what goal role that the brain plays in how we see, connect, and feel about ourselves sexually. Jim will be joining us right after the break. He is on the line waiting. But if you have any questions, please call 866-472-5787 or email the sexual voice at the jafordgroup.com. In the seconds before we break, I'm just going to share with you, I had the opportunity to first hear Jim speak at a conference in Boston two years ago. And I found his work fascinating as he talked about his research with rats around their first sexual experience through odors or, or smells that they picked up and how it became kind of a guiding force in their future sexual experiences. But as I sat listening to him, I kind of expounded on what that might look like for humans in their first sexual experiences, because I often see how those first sexual experiences get played out over 
the course of a lifetime. Jim received his PhD in behavioral neuroscience from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver in 1990, after his postdoctoral training in molecular biology and behavior at the Rockefeller University in New York City. He joined the Center for Studies of Behavioral Neurobiology at Concordia University in Montreal, where he is currently a professor of neuroscience and psychology. His research is generally concerned with the neurochemical and the neuroendocrine functions. His research has received international attention and has been the subject of many newspaper, magazine, and television reports. And he's featured in lay books of sex and sexuality. So we'll be right back with Jim. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to the sexual voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to the sexual voice. Hello, welcome back. We have Jim Faust here and he's ready to join us. But just a little personal note. I, as I got to look at uh, some of Jim's work and do a little research behind him, I was quite pleasantly surprised and uh, enjoyed a conversation with him earlier this week. Uh, one, he's an accomplished musician, and uh, which I think is intriguing. The looking at music and science together, um, but on a more personal note. Uh, We both grew up in Maryland, and we shared uh, the same affection for the food from the Eastern Shore. So I'm not sure if anyone out there is listening from the Eastern Shore, but uh, 
we love your food and uh, someday hope to make it back for some crabs. So uh, we're back and Jim, uh, I've shared with you some questions early on and let's get started. So right. welcome. Thanks for being my first, I guess. Wow. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a nice distinction. Yes. So uh, with all of your knowledge of neurobiology and your research and training, uh, can you give me and, and, and give the audience today an overview of the brain and sex uh, and how maybe it determines our sexual experiences? So, yeah, so it's a, I mean, it's a very interesting question. It's one that yeah, I, I think the answers to that question are still kind of being collected. But one of the ways to think about the brain, there, there's, there's several take-home messages about the brain that, I'm gonna, that I want to give you right now, which is, and the first important one is that the brain is very flexible. So the brain is able to take information from the outside world and kind of process it in a way that makes sense to you in an enduring fashion, but also in a way that some things it'll set in stone and some things it'll kind of keep in a flexible flux, which means that you can always change certain things. Other things get locked in. And knowing how the brain is able to differentiate those things is, mm-hmm. you know, still a question that is, is very much evolving. One thing I can tell you about the brain is that it has systems that are for excitation and systems that are for inhibition. Largely, the excitation that we get comes through two mechanisms. One is kind of a bottom-up wow when you hear something, you see something that's new, it could be scary, it could be wonderful, you get a big wow response. And that response makes you orient to it, makes you look at it, look it over, find out if it's dangerous, find out if it's wonderful, and either move away from it really quickly or move toward it. And that bottom-up kind of system doesn't require a lot of eh, even conscious interpretation until you've done the interpreting. Okay. So it's, it's, it's very much a system that, you know, it's probably designed in evolution to get you away from bad things. If you hear an explosion, run the opposite direction. If you hear a, a roar, a hiss, run the opposite direction, or at least figure out what it is. The other system, though, which is inhibition, comes sort of almost top down. And it's, it's much more conscious. It's much more aware. It involves a lot of your prefrontal cortex, which is there for something called executive function. And one of the things it does is produces behavioral inhibition. Now, you look at behavioral inhibition, what am I talking about? Well, imagine that you're a kid playing a piano. Now, how do babies look on a piano? They bang it all over the place. Once you start learning how to play it, you learn to move your fingers around the keys and not just bang at it. Behavioral inhibition is really, really important, but inhibited states are also important to make you not do things when it's not the good time to do them. So if we think in terms of sex, well, excitation, we tend to think as being something more bottom-up. So we get, you know, vaginal blood flow, clitoral blood flow, penile blood flow, labial blood flow. And that blood, which then in, the, in, in, in women is going to produce or is very, very important to produce the, the, uh, the lubrication that is preparing your vagina to have sex and is going to produce the erection that's preparing a male to have sex, 
that we tend to be aware of after we get to a certain stage in its, in its uh, production. And once we're aware of that, we can say, oh, this is not the right circumstance, or, oh, this is a great circumstance. Oh, I'm glad I have this. Oops, I shouldn't be having this while I'm doing a public speaking tour. I shouldn't be having this at the restaurant. I shouldn't be having this while I'm running around. So that second system is your cortex, and it's telling you that this is the right context, this is the right place, or this is not the right context, and it's not the right place, it's not the right person, oh, I'm not so sure. Oh my God, look at that, the paint is chipping from the ceiling, Um, I don't know, we need to deal with that before we deal with anything sexual. So you have these two systems in the brain, and they are constantly imploding. One is trying, is essentially saying, nope, 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 and the other is essentially saying, yes, 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 yes. The third system, which is kind of in the hypothalamus and the the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system, is one that actually disinhibits. And what do I mean by that? Well, disinhibition is the inhibition of inhibition. So if you are normally not thinking about it, you're normally thinking about something else, you have to actually inhibit that ongoing process of whatever it is you're doing at the time when a sexual incentive comes into your view so that you would drop what you're doing and look, drop what you're doing and approach, drop what you're doing and engage. All of that requires you to inhibit the ongoing activity so that you can actually now respond to the bottom-up excitation. So let's think of a brain that works that way because your brain works that way for food. It works that way for everything. It works that way for sex. It works that way for driving a car, right? I mean, if if it didn't, you'd keep on driving straight and not look at the other car running that red light, right? So you've got to be able to disengage and re-engage, and the brain's flexibility is what determines that. So now some people have more excitation. Some people have more inhibition. So the, one, of the, one of the ways we get highly, a high degree of variability in people's sexual responses is simply because people are put together, their brains are put together that way that some are more inhibited, some are more excited. So what's normal then, which is a good question to ask, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, how does that determine your sexual experience? Well, imagine that when you know nothing about sex, which is... I, I don't think anybody is ever there. I mean, even even kids begin to feel their genitals and feel good about their genitals and, and, you know, touch themselves and whatnot. I mean, they don't necessarily do it in front of their parents, but even if they do, you know, imagine those first experiences where somebody says, oh, gee, look at that, you have an erection. Is that, is that a periscope on a submarine? Wow, look at that. I mean, there are ways to deal with that that don't involve shaming the kid, but now you can imagine that if you have somebody who has a, an issue with that, you know, the the mm-hmm. kid feels shamed. And these sure. are some of your primal sexual experiences that you begin to now organize your sexual responses around. Okay. So, you know, if you, if you have a yeah, non-judgmental, very open, you know, your, your body is yours, your body, whatever it does is kind of fun. And, you know, when you come into your sexuality at puberty... You're, you're, you're beginning to put all this stuff together, and of course the hormone actions in your brain, androgen actions in the, in the brains of both men and women, but also estrogenic actions in the brains of both men and women because you know, our testosterone is, is actually converted into estradiol, and it's the estradiol that actually produces our masculine patterns of sexual behavior. Those 
all of those things are, are now turning on for the first time these neurochemical systems, which, you know, when you see something, you know, if, if you're six years old and you see a 22-year-old person who looks hot to you, I mean, it's even ridiculous to consider that because they don't view the world that way. Once hormones come into effect, now suddenly they begin to view a, a person as a sexual incentive or things that the person might be wearing as alluring, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, and so we start to look at the world a bit differently, especially during puberty, which is one of those critical periods when the hormone actions are, are now activating these new feelings. And of course, you know, if you remember being an adolescent, you remember what that was like. I mean, you write bad poetry, your legs are not, are, not hop, are not operating the right way, your voice is changing, you're highly emotional, you know, you, you, you ruminate over whether, you know, I, I think of Charlie Brown and the, and the little red-haired girl, right? You ruminate over whether you're going to talk to this person, how you're going to ask this person out, like, what's, that, what's the first kiss going to feel like? What is the first touch going to feel like? What's it going to feel like when you actually have sex? And, you know, these are, these are issues that go through kids' minds. So these first experiences are steeped in emotion and hormones and, and this, this soup that absolutely nobody really understands all that well. Because once we're through it, we think, okay, now, good, I'm an adult. And now I know how everything works. And, of course, now you've got your whole lifespan to start to reiterate how everything works, because you're going to have new experiences that are going to be wonderful or be terrible. So, so is there any difference, uh, gender differences? Uh, one of my, or two of my favorite books is The Female Brain and The Male Brain. Uh, and, and could you maybe elaborate if, you know, how those differences kind of play out, especially during adolescence? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, girls go through puberty before boys do. One of the big conundrums is that, gee, I really like her, but she likes people that are two years older. So, because they're two years older, essentially. But it's it's hard to divorce it from the kind of socialization that we get too, right? I mean, I mean, if you think about it, you know, there are two four-letter words that start with an S that define (laughs) people who have lots of sex. One is stud, and the other is slut, and the connotation of those two things is not only male and female, but it's good and bad. Okay. And so sure. we, we kind of start out with this really negative connotation about the free expression of sexuality in women, whereas, you know, for guys, yeah, go out there and get some before you're going to settle down, and that's fine. But you know what? The brain interprets the sexual stimuli almost identically between men and women. But some of the sex differences that we tend to see are, are really differences that have sort of been created within these two different contexts. So if I feel horny and I'm masturbating and somebody discovers that, is this the kiss of death or is this something to laugh about? So, so, so largely, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead. No, a lot, you know, then, then you're looking at more of the societal influence. Is that what you're saying? Which, or, I mean, which, there's no difference with the, with the chemistry then? Well, with the neurochemistry, no, there's absolutely no difference. And we, we find that in male and female rats. I mean, they show different behaviors, but, you know, the, the pleasure that they get out of sex, the, uh, the arousal, the drive to, to have it. I mean, obviously, 
one of the big differences is that women, and in fact all mammalian females, are in hormonal cycles. They're, they're, and their desire sort of wanes and ebbs along those cycles. So, for example, around ovulation, mammalian females are all exceptionally horny. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean they're going to express it. When you live in a culture that tells you it's not ladylike to be horny, then, in fact, you will do everything you can to engage that frontal lobe to suppress it until you're in the right circumstance, whatever that might be, depending on the culture. When you are a female rat, you don't live in that world. I mean, nobody's <laughs> ever called you a slut for going to solicit sex from a male and from controlling you know, all your sexual interactions. So, so, in fact, it reveals this very powerful sexual... I'm going to call it a sex drive, but it's really a reactivity to, to uh, sex cues from, from potential partners that okay. females have. Okay. Uh, right now, we need to take a break, and we'll be right back with Jim and his fascinating uh, di- you know, discussion. Thank you so much, Jim. We'll be right back. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Listening to the Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to the Sexual Voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to the Sexual Voice. Hello, we're back with Jim Faust, uh, and we're discussing uh, the brain and sex. So we're going to kind of move into another topic, one that as a therapist, I often uh, work with clients who've had uh, trauma, especially sexual trauma and their childhood and, and adolescence. And also many individuals have struggled with uh, attachment issues, uh, either from abuse and other kinds of neglect. So I'm going to kind of uh, put this question out. 
what role does our earliest emotional attachments play out in changing the neurobiology of the brain? And then obviously, how does that affect us sexually? Yeah, well, that's a, I mean, that's a really $64,000 question, but, you know, because there are many different styles that people develop when they've had uh, early abuse and early attachment issues. Um, The one thing to remember, though, is that the brain's neurochemistry is always seeking to move towards things that are good and away from things that are bad. And, you know, if your early attachments are sort of good and positive and whatnot, then, you know, you see someone you like, you see features of someone that could be potentially hot in your later life, in your post-adolescent life, you, you know, you, you start to mobilize your brain dopamine, your oxytocin, you know, your opioid systems get turned on, and all of these things are moving you then in the direction of interacting with someone, right, and, and kind mm-hmm. of opening yourself up to that person. And that's what, you know, under, under, I'm going to say normal circumstances, but what I mean by that is not normal because nobody really knows what that is. But under circumstances where your attachments are positive, you know, and you don't have some kind of genetic mutation, you know, in, in some autism kind of way around oxytocin, you, you tend to open yourself up to people and you tend to move closer to people that are, you know, that you want to be close to. And, and if those people want to be close to you, then you get closer and closer until you interact. So when you've had early emotional attachment issues around abuse, whether it's physical or sexual or psychological, whatever it might be, now you have to develop an, an earlier than normal activation of that frontal lobe inhibitory system. Okay. And, you know, the reason is because here you did. You reached out and somebody smacked you. Well, what's that going to do to reaching out next time? That's going to inhibit reaching out next time. And you're going to do what you're told and you're going to sit down back straight and you're going to not interact, not look, not try to open up. And so you're going to be constantly imposing inhibition over your desire. And this creates a very confused individual because part of you, your bottom-up system is saying, I'm turned on, and your top-down system is saying, no, give your heart, he'll kill you. Give your heart, he'll hit you. Give your heart, something bad will happen. So there's a, there's a constant feeling and a constant war that's going on with people to be able to do that. You know, and, it, and then you've got to unlearn what your first experience has told you is the way the world works. And that's one of those things that the brain remembers forever. Okay. It's, it's, Does, it's very it, similar to an addictive process. Is it possible, though, along that course where you begin to feel that the abusive behavior that you received actually somehow becomes normalized in the brain where that's in a way what you seek? Well, that's, that's one way that people, I mean, you know, we have many different response styles to that, but mm-hmm. that's one way that some individuals kind of resolve the issue. So, yeah, I'm not normally turned on by what would be, what my, all my friends tell me is a normal kind of trajectory of, you know, I see somebody, I kiss, we fondle, we touch, we finally have sex. No, no, no. Now I want to I be, be smacked around a little bit. But why do I want to be smacked around? Because 
I live with inhibited arousal. And, you know, you're not going to get anywhere if your autonomic nervous system isn't turned on. That's what, you know, gets the blood going into the genitals and gets the blood going into erectile tissues. So for some individuals, being smacked around or being spanked or having your hair pulled or whatever it might be is not some, you know, horrible masochistic kind of thing. What it is is actually something that when it happens now produces autonomic arousal. And now you can function normally in a sexual circumstance, whereas before this, you can't. So it's, it's absolutely critical to be able to turn that system on. And when that system has been inhibited for the longest time, don't speak out, don't you cry, don't you cry out, don't you do this. Well, you have to learn to turn that off. And once that's learned, it's exceptionally difficult to get yourself sensitized to what we'll call normal or, you know, basically the, the, the typical kind of cues that people would be turned on by. So now you live life a bit more on the edge and you're doing things that are turning you on that aren't necessarily sexual, but you're doing them in order to be able to be turned on then in some very quick or, you know, temporally speaking, normal fashion. Well, the word I often use in the office is opposed to normal because that mm-hmm. is a very strange word. In very my mind, loaded but, term. Yeah, um, is healthy. Right. You know, what right. feels but healthy. What is healthy some... then? You know, because somebody can learn to turn that off, to, to, to turn off their arousal, and you would say, okay, look, it's probably not healthy to have somebody hold a knife to your throat to be able to be turned on sexually. You also have individuals who are simply born with systems that are not that labile, right? Mm-hmm. So they have, they have just a natural overproduction of serotonin. They have, you know, overproduction of things that would normally be, you know, come online to inhibit during, say, a refractory period. But now these things are just online all the time, you know, sort of like people taking, you know, SSRI antidepressants. They have too much serotonin in the system, and consequently they lose both their sort of sex drive or their sexual desire, and they can lose their ability to have orgasms. You know, they get really close, but then it goes, kind of goes away. So these are, I mean, these are ways of thinking about what healthy is then is, well, what's the purpose to it? You know, is the purpose just to scare me in order to be able to function? Because, you know, instead of a knife to your throat, you can probably go skydiving or bungee jumping or, you know, go to Cozumel and have, you know, to try it there. Because any kind of novel experience is also quite arousing. It doesn't have to be life-threatening. So there probably are ways to kind of veer individuals or steer them toward things that you know, may be a little bit less life-threatening but just as arousing. Okay. So let's transition a bit because some of the things that you're describing almost, you know, I, I guess I'm looking at this uh, component of appetite versus mm-hmm. hunger. And you talked earlier about the limbic system that kind of motivates that appetite. But mm-hmm. can you kind of expand and look at what is the difference between hunger and appetite from a food perspective? I think I think I understand that. But from a sexual perspective. And, yeah, uh, so, so. yeah, so imagine that that you have a system that kind of from the inside out makes you 
go and do something. And we, we would say that that's hunger. You know, that, that you, you get somatic feelings, you have a, a sense of wanting and of craving things, but you also have a system that can turn you on from the outside in. And we call this kind of an incentive system, the appetitive or appetite system, where, you know, you had breakfast at 10, but it's noon. The clock says noon. It's time to have lunch. Or you may have eaten, you know, your fill of a turkey dinner. You are done. You are sated. You can't stuff another piece into your mouth. Uh, But then the creme brulee comes. And now you're open to another 6,000 calories, which your body clearly doesn't need. So we think of hunger as being satisfying a need state. We think of appetite as being something that's more, uh, shall we say, culinary, more interested in food that tastes good as opposed to food that simply satisfies a need. So... The same, the same exists in sex. In fact, it's very, it's very similar systems as well that are activated by food and by sex and by you know, music that gives you chills and, and also by drugs of abuse, interestingly enough. Um, and these more are activating the appetitive or appetite system. So if you see someone, you know, you know you shouldn't, yeah, let's say you're in a particular culture that says, no, thou shalt not have sex with other people, but are you still turned on by other people? Why does that work? Because the system gets aroused by the external cues of that individual. And, of course, those are very individually defined in terms of what is hot and what's not. But when that head turns, it's simply because that dopamine system has been turned on. And now you can inhibit that and say, I'm a good boy, I have good goodwill, I'm not going to go there. Or you can say, well, you know, I'm single, I think I'm going to go there. And when these systems are turned on, they have feedback to the hypothalamus, which is a system that's kind of giving you hunger. And it's an interesting conundrum because sex doesn't, you know, you're not going to die if you don't have sex. So people have quite often kept kind of sex out of the kind of list of motivated behaviors, even though it's kind of at the top of the hierarchy, because it's like you're not going to die from lack of sex, whereas you will die from lack of food, from lack of shelter, um, et cetera, lack of fluids. So we tend to think of hunger as being something more physiological and appetite as being something more psychological. Of course, they're all interpreted in the brain. And what's really cool is that the appetite system and the hunger system work hand-in-hand with one another. And, in fact, work hand-in-hand by activating different modules within the hypothalamus that say, well, that's my, that's my partner. I want to be, be intimate with this partner and not eat the partner, whereas here's my food. I want to eat my food but not necessarily be intimate with my food. So it gives you these... You know, the, the right response, the right reaction, the right motor actions that will allow you to satisfy either the, the kind of pseudo-need state that's activated by appetite or the real need state that would be activated by hunger. So the brain essentially uses the same systems, and that's one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to understand because people look at that and they say, oh, well, you know, you're not going to die if you don't have sex, so why would you even activate the same system? Like, why would something you don't need to do, the species needs to do it, but each individual doesn't, why would that end up at the top of the hierarchy? And, of course, you can go beyond that. You can go to things like, you know, addiction, drug addiction. You can go to even the old electrical brain stimulation. You put a wire in the brain, you find rats will bar press for this and not eat until they die. Like, why would that happen 
Well, it's because that flexibility in the brain is telling you, I've satisfied all my needs. Of course, I don't need to eat. I don't need to have sex. I don't need to do anything with the wire in my brain going to the right place. So the systems are interactive. And your conscious awareness of it can be a feeling of kind of spontaneous desire. You know, you may wake up on day of ovulation if you're a woman. You may wake up having had some sexual dreams and you kind of wake up feeling like you really would much rather have sex and go to work. And so you wake up that way and it feels very spontaneous. On the other hand, you may react to things in the world. But what's clear is that even if you wake up feeling that way, you're going to go seek out things in the world that will kind of satisfy or arouse you further. And likewise, if you see something, you know, the candy bar in the, in the, in the vending machine, you may think, yeah, I think I'm a little bit hungry. I, don't want, I want that chocolate bar. You don't have any need for it. There's no hunger associated with Hershey's or Ghirardelli chocolate necessarily, but you're still going to put the money in the machine and get it. So these, these two systems are highly, highly interactive. And interestingly enough, the appetite system sensitizes. It sensitizes over time with your experience, with the pleasure of what you derive from it. So that's a, that, uh, it's an important thing to remember because, you know, again, going back to abusive situations, we'll imagine that, you know, your type is someone who actually is a type of individual who is abusive. Okay, and we're going to break for just a second, Jim. So we'll be right back and we'll come back to that. So hold on to that thought. Thank you. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about the show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Listening to the Sexual Voice with Jessica Ford. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to the sexual voice at jafordgroup.com. Now, back to the sexual voice. Hello, welcome back. And we're here with Dr. Faust uh, talking with Jim about sexual hunger and appetite. But I'm, I'm going to just kind of say around this need on, on hunger. And while, yes, we need to survive, we need water, we need food, we need air. But I'm, I'm going to just call attention to the fact that we also need touch. We also need this physical connection. And uh, I know uh, that infants who are not touched, who are not held, who are not cradled, they die. And this isn't that then what we're hungering for? I mean, when we talk about sex, sex is, you know, we're implying that it only can mean intercourse. And that isn't really the topic, I think. It's sex is about touch. It is about connection. So maybe you can, you know, share, you know, shed some light on that. Sure. sure no, I, I mean, I, I agree completely with you. I mean, the, the, the purpose of sex at an individual level is to f- essentially feel pleasure. Now, what's the role of pleasure? Well, the role of pleasure is to enhance your interaction with the world and enhance, I mean, that's what it does by sen- that whole process of sensitization. So without it, and especially during a critical period of your early development, without being touched, without being nourished, you lose emotional nourishment. And that emotional nourishment that you get from touch is absolutely critical for your survival. It's critical to be felt as a wanted individual, to be desired, to be wanted. And, you know, from a sexual standpoint, to be wanted and desired that way is one of the, I mean, you know, well, I like you for your mathematical ability. That's good, but your accountant isn't necessarily the person that you're going to want to like throw your clothes off for. To have somebody affect you at that emotional level means that mm-hmm. that person's value is the top of the top of the top. And when you feel like you are that, you know, that your, your back is straight, your walk is cocky, you're, you are just on top of the world. And why is it that that's so necessary? You know, and it, it, it's not a narcissistic kind of necessity. It's a, it's, it's a real necessity of being wanted. And, you know, again, we're social creatures. And as social creatures, that, you know, being wanted by another, being interacted with by another, being touched by someone is one of the most genuine and, shall we say, most intimate things that can happen. So it's absolutely critical for, for your own psychological well-being and your own physiological well-being to actually be touched. And, of course, that plays itself out in a sexual sense. So, I mean, this is about this human potential of being, you know, of, of feeling the touch, the warmth of, of, and connection. And while we know there's a lot of, you know, single people out there that are not with someone uh, how how does that play out? And and I don't have you know certainly all the answers with that. But 
Right. You know, how does that, I mean, if an infant can die from not being touched, I guess, I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering from that psychological perspective, what is it like for people that are not having that connection? Because we know we crave that. We do want that. And, and certainly, I mean, single people are not necessarily not having sex. They're just not uh, no, necessarily partnered up, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but one, would, one would imagine that, you know, they're getting touched in different ways or being needed and desired in, in, in different ways. I mean, again, unless, you know, they have a real genetic problem with the system itself, which defines, mm-hmm. say, the spectrum of autism. Right where, you know, I was tell I was tell my students, you want to know what it feels like to be autistic? Go be on an elevator and have somebody grab you from behind. You know, you, that in, that initial experience of feeling like your space has been invaded makes you turn around and want to wilt away from this person until you realize it's your boyfriend or girlfriend, and then you kind of smack them upside the head and say, "Oh, you scared the crap out of me." Well, it's it's that kind of thing. It's like you know, you want touch, but you want touch from the right people. You want okay. touch from the people that, are, that, that you feel close to. Now, go the opposite end. When you don't have anybody that you feel close to and you want the touch, that's where you start to feel dead inside. And, and you know, that can probably in some individuals play itself out by, you know, prompting them to commit suicide, right? It can get, you, you know, it, it can produce a, a level of despair in mm-hmm. people that sure. really makes their emotional life just become one big zero. And prior to that, presumably, they'll seek it out. They'll seek out interaction with others and interaction that could lead to, you know, some kind of touch. And humans are touching each other all the time, right? People are patting each other on the back there. You know, even if it's the big, you know, the bro, you know, oh, it's a good, good thing you did there, whack on the back, you know, you're, there's still touch. And intimate caressing touch, getting massage, for example, um, you know, there's also learning how to touch yourself, which is not necessarily another individual doing it, but, you know, you, you know, learning how to apply the right kind of touch. This is something that, unfortunately, there's another big sex difference about women are, you know, we tend in our culture to look at two women touching each other and say, oh, well, that's normal. Two guys that touch that way, we say, well, I mean, if they're gay, that's great, but if they're not, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. Right? And we tend to place these into context, whereas, you know, you, you, we all need that touch. And certainly when you're a baby, you need it a lot more because you need, you need to be protected. And you're, you're learning some, some of the first attachments that you have is to your mom and dad and maybe brothers and sisters and even pets because they're touching you and you're touching them. And this activates in your brain very similar systems to, the, you know, to, what, to what we see with uh, drugs of abuse and sex and looking at pictures of your baby and all this kind of stuff that, that you see in the MRI studies of brain acti- human brain activation when you just show them pictures, you, know, you get this beautiful activation of this very similar system. Uh, Larry Young at Emory University calls this the mommy system, but you know, dads have a mommy system in them too that allows them to seek out their child and touch their child and hold that child very, very close. You wouldn't necessarily hold somebody else's baby the same way. But you're going to hold yours very, very close to you and very close to your heart. Well, Jim, I, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm hoping everyone out there can hold their babies. and uh, But more importantly, that everyone out there can find a hug and someone to touch them. 
Oh, or enjoy the pleasure of touching themselves. But I need to end this, and uh, I'm going to say thank you so much, Jim. Your 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 research, your insights. I, I could talk to you a lot longer, and maybe I'll have you back at some point when well, that'd be uh, great. we can continue. But for now, I'm going to say next week, I hope you join me when we have Dr. Gina Ogden, who's going to be discussing expanding the view of sex, the benefits of sex therapy. Gina is a one of the most creative and, and extraordinary women I think I've met in, in my field, and she is going to be sharing with her the body of her work, which is extensive. She has been writing since the 90s. Her first book was Women Who Love Sex. Uh, We're looking at the heart and soul of sex, the return of desire, and also looking at the theoretical concepts that she's created with the practical 4D wheel that uh, helps us as clinicians look at this whole person from the, our thoughts and mind to our body to uh, the, the physical aspects uh, and the spiritual aspects and the emotional. I love work, her work and I know you're all going to love hearing from her. So thank you for joining me and I hope you'll join me next Friday at the same time here on the Variety Channel with Voice America. Thanks. Thank you for joining Jessica and her guests today on The Sexual Voice. Please tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy your sexual self, and please join us here next Friday. 